0: whether you are a sports fan or not, probably well aware that uh, the Super Bowl's taking place this evening, and it's always this time of year that I see uh, see on social media a meme makes its way around about how Christians ought to be as enthusiastic about church Sunday morning as they are about the game that Sunday night, and that should be displayed by, by dowsing your pastor in Gatorade, if he makes a good point that morning, and so sure that my sister had a hand in making sure we're, <laughs> we're ready for that this morning. Uh, I'll keep my eye on these donor boys up front, because i just in case. <laughs> but, but you know, even though, so you think about the Super Bowl, even though it's only a, a, a single football game, it, it really has come to have a place of influence in, in the larger culture of America. Um, the crowd at the game often consists of uh, the who's who in America. And undoubtedly tonight, there will be some point during the game where the, the TV cameras will show us just exactly which famous people are, are there attending the game. And so it makes a ticket for the, the Super Bowl difficult to come by, makes it very expensive, um, even if you could find one. So. So it's perhaps not surprising that that this story uh, took place back in 2019 when the Super Bowl was in Atlanta. There was a man driving his car from Florida to Atlanta, and he was pulled over just south of Atlanta for for driving on expired tags. And so uh, officers do what they do and quickly discovered that this man had an active FBI warrant out for his arrest and, and as, as they're doing their thing, the officers then received a phone call from an FBI special agent informing them that this individual uh, was known for making counterfeit tickets to, to major events. And so, they proceeded to search his car and, sure enough, discovered sheets of cardstock and a uh, printing equipment and <laughs> everything that was enough to uh, implicate him uh, in, in, uh, in what he was, was accused of. So, needless to say, that, that guy watched that year's Super Bowl from jail, right? He, he got that seat. But, but can you imagine being a person that, that, uh, that bought a fake ticket from that individual? I mean, imagine that, you're so excited that you finally have this pass to get into the big game. And I can just imagine walking up to the stadium, all that excitement, standing in line at the gate, you get to the front of the line, and then you're told, I'm sorry, this ticket's a fake, you're not coming in, you you gotta stay out here. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine that? One, all the money that you probably lost, but two, just the Oh, how deflating would that be, the anticipation that you would have had of entering and then all of a sudden to be told, no, nah, sorry, you're not allowed to come in. Mm. And in an instant, you'd go from thinking that you're going to be part of this amazing event to realizing that you're actually barred from entering, not allowed to go in. So, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about that as I was pondering the, the passages for this Sunday. As great of a gathering as the Super Bowl might be, there there is a gathering of people that will take place in the future. It's going to be even better than that, far better than that. During his life, Jesus, he regularly spoke about his kingdom. And the kingdom of God isn't just going to be this gathering of all gatherings. It's the very existence for which we've been created, but can you imagine assuming and believing that you're going to gain entrance into that kingdom only to have Jesus tell you that you're mistaken? No, sorry, you're, you're not currently part of my kingdom. I mean, that's exactly what we're going to see this morning in three parables that Jesus tells to the religious leaders in Jerusalem So so as we prepare to go through these three parables, we have to remember the context in which Jesus told them. He he has just entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We talked about that last week. Uh, He's entered on a donkey to the worship of his disciples and to the worship of the crowds. Um, He then went into the temple. He, He drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple courts, and he continued receiving worship in the temple. From the blind and the lame and the children that were there, and and so this whole thing left the religious leaders upset. They were upset that Jesus was receiving this recognition. They were upset at the kind of people that Jesus would spend time with—not just that, not just that Palm Sunday, but but throughout his ministry as well. Um, they were upset about how Jesus did not follow their man-made customs. So, so the next day then, after Palm Sunday, they, they try to discredit Jesus. They try to, di- try to disprove his authority to do the things that he did, but they failed to do so. And then after that, Jesus turns the tables on them and, and tells them three parables that, that are aimed directly at them. And so, so these are the parables that he told. I would encourage you to follow with me in your own Bibles. We'll be starting in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Um, It's page 826 in the Pew Bibles, if you want that. But the first parable that he told goes like this, verse 28. Jesus said, "'What do you think? "'A man had two sons. "'And he went to the first and said, "'Son, go and work in the vineyard today.' "'And he answered, "'I will not.' But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So th- this first parable of the three, it, it, it's by far the shortest. Um, I'd say it's probably the simplest to understand of the three. The focus is on these two sons. And it's on both the, the verbal response of those two sons and, and then the actions that followed as it pertained to the command of their father. So when you look at the two sons side by side, really neither one of them comes off looking like a saint. I mean, you got the first one, the first son, disrespects his father by saying to his face, "No, I'm not, not going to go work in the vineyard." Now he later changed his mind and and went to work, but but at first he just said, "No, I'm not going to do it." And then the second son gave his father the answer that, that he would have longed for, would have wanted, but, but did not go, even though he said he would. And the assumption is that the second son never intended to go, meaning that all along he was seeking to deceive his father by saying that he would. So, so neither one look real good right off the bat. But, but when Jesus asked which son did the will of his father— the religious leaders judged that it was the first son, the one who said he wouldn't, but then changed his mind and did go work in the vineyard. So in essence, it was the son who at first glance seemed to be the one who displeased his father. So Jesus then surprised the religious leaders by stating that, yeah, you guys are right in your answer, but that first son represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were coming to faith in him. Although most Jews would have judged tax collectors and prostitutes to be disrespecting God by their actions, they were actually going into the kingdom of God before the religious leaders. They had heard the teaching about Jesus and had come to accept him, come to repent of their sins. And then you got the religious leaders, on the other hand, who, who talked a good game. They were, they were, they had earned the respect of many people, but they had rejected Jesus. They had rejected Jesus' teaching. When, when Jesus talks about John and what John came, John was speaking about Jesus. That was the message that he proclaimed. So, what's interesting is the thing that the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the religious leaders all had in common was that they all were confronted with the message about who Jesus was. They all heard that message. Just like the two sons in the story, both sons received the same message from the father. So everybody who was present with Jesus was confronted with who Jesus was. The difference was their response to that message. So the religious leaders, they, they had rejected it. And and you've seen that already. We, we, we've seen it in their desire to discredit Jesus. We're going to continue to see their rejection revealed when when uh, uh, as they as they uh, plot to have Jesus arrested and and um, beaten and killed. So they thought the religious leaders thought they were part of the kingdom of God, but in this first parable, Jesus showed them they're not. They're not because of their rejection of him. Now, we'll, we'll go through all three of these before we get to um, application this morning in our own lives. But, but perhaps we can maybe already sense what, what the application might be as we, as we think about it. But, but that's the first parable. And so in case they missed the point, Jesus told them another parable. So look with me at verse 33, where we get the second one. Jesus says, "Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, "'killed another, and stoned another. "'Again he sent other servants, more than the first, "'and they did the same to them. "'Finally he sent his son to them, "'saying, they will respect my son. "'But when the tenants saw the son, "'they said to themselves, "'This is the heir. "'Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance.' "'And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard "'and killed him. "'When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes,' What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So, like parables often do, it, it begins with this common situation, this common scene. It would have been unusual for the owner of a field or a vineyard to, uh, to rent it out to others, fully expecting to receive his share of the crop when the time came. The shock comes when the tenants beat and kill those that the owner had sent to receive that share of the crops and then when the owner finally sends his son in the hopes that that he will be respected the tenants show their true intentions by by killing the son they have they have completely rejected the owner's right to the vineyard and the fruits of that vineyard and again just like in the last parable Jesus asks the religious leaders a question and then, then uses their own words uh, to condemn them. Uh, so the religious leaders, they size up the situation and they judge that the owner himself was, is soon going to come and he's going to give those tenants what they deserve. They'll be killed. The vineyard will be rented out to those who actually submit to the owner and who, who give him his portion of the crops. And so Jesus hears their reply, and he proceeds to quote a passage from Psalm 118. And, and and I think we've got to catch the irony even before he quotes the passage. Jesus says, have, have you never read in the scriptures? I mean, remember who Jesus is talking to here. These is the chief priests, Pharisees, teacher of the law, people who read the scriptures. This is the second time in two days now that he's basically called into question their reading of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm I'm sure they appreciated that greatly when Jesus would start that way. But what Jesus did was focus on, uh, he quoted a line from a psalm that was about salvation uh, from the Lord, the salvation of the Lord. And so Psalm 118 recounts one who was, he was in distress, he called out to God had faith in the steadfast love of God, and found deliverance, found salvation from God. And and from where did that salvation come? It it came from a place where it had been previously rejected. That's what Psalm 118 is about. The, The temple of God is in view in Psalm 118. Some even think that this psalm was written Um, in response to the temple being rebuilt after the people came back from captivity, and and that's when it was first utilized. Now, the people were sent into captivity because they rejected God. They they rejected the God of the temple, and and they sought after all the false gods of the nations surrounding them. But in Psalm 118, they've come back, and what was once rejected, the temple and the God of of that temple— has now taken the place of central importance once again. Salvation has come from God. And so Jesus, from the courts of the temple, no less, brought the religious leaders back to that psalm, back to that statement in that psalm. psalm in Psalm 118, salvation came from what was rejected before. And what Jesus is saying is that ultimate salvation is going to come from God. What is being rejected right then? Salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God, was coming by the by way of the very one that they were rejecting, and and he says that they would soon be crushed or you might say defeated by the stone that they were rejecting, and and Jesus, of course, is that symbolic cornerstone being spoken of. So once again, you have the religious leaders thinking that they were firmly in God's kingdom, but are told, nope, it's being taken away from you. The kingdom is going to be given to ones who do receive the owner and do produce fruit for that owner. So you got the first parable, you got the second parable saying that, and if if that wasn't enough, Jesus gave them one more. I mean, we've got different characters, different storyline, but but the same purpose as before. So look with me at, at Matthew chapter 22. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And the servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I think a, a good thing to do when reading the Bible is, is to, to pay attention to connections within books and connections across books of the Bible. It, it, it allows a person to pick up on on themes which track throughout the bible it, it, it helps a person interpret the bible with the bible so when reading this parable about a wedding feast i think it's natural to have our attention drawn to the the great wedding feast of the lamb spoken of in revelation chapter 19 and so i, I think we're wise to at least ask is there is there a link between this and that great wedding feast in this instance i don't think Jesus had in mind that ultimate wedding feast. I, uh, first, the, these three parables, are they're all connected. And, and in, the, in the first two, Jesus is, is just using common situations to describe the nature of his kingdom. And I think he's doing the same here in the third parable. I think he's, using, he's describing a common wedding feast in order to further describe his kingdom. And then second, too, at this point in, in history, John had not yet received that that vision of heaven that we find in Revelation. He'd not yet written the book of Revelation. So so the religious leaders to whom Jesus was speaking would not have a concept about that passage, that great wedding feast of the Lamb described in Revelation 19. So, so I don't think we're meant to try to... to read this and say, okay, which details here in this parable match up with with, uh, Revelation 19? I I don't think we're, we're, we're quite led to do that. Instead, we ought to hear Jesus giving a third parable in order to drive home the point he's been making in the previous two. There were those who had been invited to the feast, but they rejected the king. And then yet again, they disgraced the king by by harming and killing the servants he sent to them. And so then as this parable goes on, the, the wedding feast isn't going to remain empty, however. Uh, the king sends his servants to bring others into the feast. Interestingly, in verse 10, it's those both good and bad. Now we might read that, and, 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 and before we question if if Jesus is kind of dabbling in inclusivism here, uh, you know, in, insinuating that there's no stipulations for entrance into the kingdom, we can't forget the end of this parable. The, there's the man there who had no wedding garment, right? I mean, he's, he's the one that's, uh, that's brought to attention. There's different ways to interpret the ending of this parable, but, but in light of Jesus' statements uh, in previous parables, in light of what Matthew's been saying, been, uh, writing in his gospel, his emphasis on doing God's will, seems likely that the, the lack of a wedding garment symbolizes a lack of fruit, a lack of obedience shown in this individual's actions. The, the person outwardly accepted the call to come to the feast, but, but the lack of a wedding garment displays an inner attitude of a lack of respect or even a rejection of of the the son of the king who's getting married, I might even say, in essence, he's there for the meal. He's not there to honor the king, whose son is getting married, and so for that reason, he's cast out of the feast. He he meets the same fate as those who outright rejected the call earlier in the parable. So what we see when we, when we step back and examine these three parables in tandem, is so that Jesus was telling the religious leaders that entrance into his kingdom is not about good standing among the crowds. It's not about a position of importance within the temple or within Judaism as a whole. Entrance into Jesus' kingdom is about faith in him and faithfulness to him. That's, that's entrance into his kingdom. It, it is those who receive Jesus and place their faith in him, not those who reject him who will find themselves in the kingdom. And those who place their faith in him will naturally be faithful to him. Faithfulness to Jesus is, is the outflow of faith in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is, is produced within us when the Spirit indwells us. We're saved by grace through faith, saved to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. So the religious leaders, they neither had faith in Jesus, nor consequently were they faithful to Jesus. Neither one. And, and as a result, they found themselves on the outside of the kingdom looking in. They, they had a counterfeit ticket, if you want to Connected back to that opening story. That they, weren't, they weren't allowed in. Now our society is, is quick to tell us that, that there are multiple ways to heaven. Um, uh, inclusion, tolerance, the, the, those are trumpeted as the highest of virtues in our society. And, and our society is also quick to silence those who, who proclaim a narrow road to heaven. A road only through Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Billy Graham, during his life, he was, he was once uh, disinvited from the National Day of Prayer service at the Pentagon, and he was disinvited because he stated that Islam delivers no hope of salvation, that salvation is only found in Jesus. So, so basically, those who, who have the audacity to tell another person that they are on the outside of the kingdom looking in are punished or are, are silenced in, in our society today. But in these three parables, Jesus makes it clear. There's there's only one way into his kingdom. And so we must accept him. We must place our faith in him in order to be a part of that kingdom. Anything else, anything else leads to being on the outside looking in. It's not a message that's always well-received in our society, or maybe even by us sometimes, but but that's the truth. That is the truth that Jesus proclaims here to the religious leaders, but, but to us as well. And so because that's proclaimed to us as well, I, I think there's two vital questions that, that we ought to ask ourselves. And the first is, how will I respond to Jesus? He's come to earth, he's displayed that he is the Son of God. He, he is the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins. He's the king of kings. He's the the source of all things. I mean, those are all objective facts. They don't change whether or not a person believes in them. And when you think about it, we too have something in common with the tax collectors and prostitutes and religious leaders. We too have been told the message about Jesus. Now, whether you've heard it Many, many times in your life, or, or whether this is the very first time this morning, you've heard it, you've heard that message, and so the question that, that uh, Jesus asks of Peter in Matthew 16 is the same one that he's asking us today: Who do you say that I am? I mean, that is that is the question: Who do you say that I am? The religious leaders would later call Jesus a a, a blasphemer, a a false king, a deceiver, an insurrectionist. They had all kinds of responses. They clearly rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah who would bring salvation. But who do we say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? And that's not a rhetorical question that I'm asking. We, We really need to answer that. We can answer that in our minds. Who do I say that Jesus is? Paul says if, if we will accept Jesus and confess him as Lord, the one, the one God raised from the dead, we'll be saved. Another way to say that, we will be given a place in his kingdom. So how will I respond to Jesus. That's the first question we need to wrestle with. The second one is, is, I think, vital as well. How will I respond to others who respond to Jesus? In these parables, uh, the religious leaders rejected Jesus, but they also rejected those who were coming to Jesus. Right, I mean, in the first parable, the, you know, they, they would have rejected the prostitutes and, and the tax collectors. Second parable, they rejected the servants coming from the owner of the vineyard. A third parable, they rejected the servants of the king. So it's not just that they are rejecting the king. They're rejecting the people of the king as well. So really, they, they, they had a problem with others who put their faith in Jesus. Others that they didn't see as worthy as being part of the kingdom of God. I think it, it, it I think we ought to ask ourselves who's that person? Who's that type of person for us? Because whoever that is, how will we respond when they begin to explore Jesus and even place their faith in Jesus? Are we willing to not just give space to them to do that but but actively proactively encourage them to come to Jesus? Would, Would we be ready if someone who we are uncomfortable with came into our gathering this morning in a desire to find out about Jesus? How would we respond to that? That person who's hurt us deeply in our lives, maybe even in an an abusive manner, are they allowed to come to faith in Jesus? How, how, how How would we respond to that? The kingdom of God is, is open to all who will receive Jesus and place their faith in him. That, that, that's great news for us, right? Boy, that's great news for us. It means that none of us are barred from coming to Jesus for any reason whatsoever. But we have to allow that to be great news for everybody else, too, not just us. I mean, it, that also means that no one else is barred from coming to Jesus for any reason whatsoever. You know, in, 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 the, uh, in the final parable, the servants went out to the roads and invited as many as they could find to the wedding feast. Jesus invites into his kingdom any who will come and receive him. And, and so I guess, I guess may our proclamation of the gospel be as wide-ranging as that, right? that it, that it is to anyone and everyone. That probably leads to some discomfort on our part, doesn't it? Probably leads to some awkward situations that for sure requires us to exercise a great amount of humility. But in so doing, we we will rightly be announcing to all the invitation to come to Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom. as we close this morning, singing a couple songs. The two songs that we're going to close with, I think, are, are reflective of those two questions that I just posed. How will I respond to Jesus? How will I respond to others who respond to Jesus? So the first song that we'll sing, um, called You Bled, that speaks of the works of Jesus upon the cross the wonderful outcome of that for you and me. It's a reminder that, that the Messiah loved me and, and loved you so much that he did what was needed to make the way for us to enter into his kingdom. He, he bled, right? How will we respond to that? The second song I love to tell the story is, is a song based on a poem by Catherine Hankey. Catherine uh, grew up in a place in London that that was well known to be a place where a group of Anglican evangelicals lived, and this group was known for fighting for the eradication of slavery and um, prison reform and the expansion of overseas missionary efforts. In short, Catherine grew up surrounded by people who fought hard for the outcast and the neglected. And so later in her life, she became ill really because of her own missionary efforts as she went out. But as she was ill, she penned a poem entitled The Old, Old Story. And it's a poem about the wonder and the power of the gospel message. And so our closing song today contains lyrics from that poem and it's quite fitting for us to sing as we, as we think about, as we ponder inviting others, especially those who are outcast and neglected, to come to faith in Jesus. So I would encourage you to, to keep those things in mind as we're, as we're singing these, these closing songs together. So, so let's stand and, and begin our closing time by coming to God in prayer, giving thanks to him for who he is. God, God, we praise you. We praise you that there is a, a way to be in your kingdom. And I praise you that you have revealed to us what that way is. Because apart from you, we, we, not only would we not find it, it just wouldn't be possible. We know that, that the way into your kingdom required your sacrifice of yourself your death upon the cross, and we're so thankful that, that you were willing to open the gate to us, to do what was necessary to do that. And God, I thank you that we're privileged to have heard that message. Uh, not everybody in the world can say that, but we can, and, and, and we're so grateful for that. God, my prayer is that, that none of us would leave here without responding to that message, without answering that question, who do we say Jesus is? God, would you open our hearts and minds daily to answer that question that we learn more about who you are and your love for us and, and your purposes in this world. And God, help us, to help us to proclaim that message to others, especially like the servants in that final parable that went out to everyone with that invitation. God, we thank you this morning. We ask that you would have your way with us, do your work in us, and do your work through us. We pray this in your name. Amen.